So Aaron's sermon uh, the other week, uh, we looked at the Christian, uh, the new man, the one who is to be an imitator of God as Aaron's sermon title was there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And we're to, we're to be those who, who imitate God in thought, in word, and in deed, as Aaron preached on the other week. We're to walk as Christ walked. We're to walk in love uh, because we have been remade. Remember, we, we are new creations in Christ. We are new men and new women uh, remade in the image and the likeness of God. And these are... Uh, things that Aaron talked about the other week, how important it is for us. Now, if you picked up on this last week or the other week when Aaron preached, uh, everything that, that Aaron dealt with in this, in this new man, all of it had to do with our relationship with one another, right? Uh, we were to speak the truth to one another because we're members of one another, Right? We're, we're, we're to go out and work so that we have something ready to share with one another. And we're to build one another up with our speech and our words. We're to be kind to one another. We're to be forgiving toward one another. So all of this deals with our relationship in the church as, as, as Aaron preached the other week. And now, this morning, Paul is going to shift gears a little bit, as it were. And now we're going to talk about, okay, now uh, what, our dealings amongst ourselves, now our dealings in the world. How do we as new men and new women in Christ relate to the outside world? How do we relate to non-believers? How do we rub shoulders with them? What does that look like? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? What is the purpose of us being out in the midst of the world? And there are a few options for us, really. I mean, we could completely disengage with the world and say, well, the world's evil. I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with the world. I don't want anything to do with unbelievers. We can completely just remove ourselves from that. I've seen this before. Or, second thing we could do here is we can, in an attempt to win unbelievers, because that's biblical, right? We want to we win those to Christ. We could become just like the world and look like the world and smell like the world and taste like the world and act like the world in order to try to win the world. And this is not my point this morning, but that doesn't work. Or, number three is this, is that we can go into the world as a beacon of hope and be what Christ made you to be, a child of light. A child of light. Brethren, that is what Paul is talking for uh, about this morning. That is what he is exhorting us to be this morning. We see it there in verse number 8. You are, you are children of light. Now walk as a child of light. Be a beacon of hope in the world. And now notice what Paul says here in verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now notice here, it wasn't as if you were in the darkness. You were darkness. You see that? It was a state of being. That's who you were. You were dark. Darkness and walking in death, not just in the darkness. But now, you're not just in the light, although that's true. You are light. 
You are life because of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? Genesis chapter 1. God spoke, let there be light into the darkness, and light came. That same God, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, has shown in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown into your heart and opened up your eyes to the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He did that out of mere grace and mercy. And He's transformed you. He has transformed you. Now this sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Right? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? You'll know this. You are the light of the world. Heard that before? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now notice here, you are an individual light of the world. And us corporately are a lot of lights gathering together like a lit up city that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And what's the purpose of that? To give light to all that are in the house, Jesus says. And Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. And what's the result of that? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brethren, that is the point. What is the point of you being remade into an image and a child of light to then go out into the world and shine like light? It's this, the conversion of the world. (laughs) That others would, would, would see the light and come into the light. We are light to shine light in the darkness and call others to come into the light. And be saved. That's the point. It's the same reason the Father calls His Son a light. That the peoples of the world who are in darkness would be saved. Remember, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Yahweh says to His servant, I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light that's come into the world to be sent to the ends of the earth that salvation may reach into the deepest, darkest parts of our world. Now with all that in mind here, I want to ask this question, what do children of light look like? That's the, 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 the title of the sermon this morning. Children of light. What do children of light look like? How do they live how do we bring transformation to unbelievers who are, who are, are, are mired and, and, and engulfed in sin and darkness? What does that look like? How do we rub shoulders with unbelievers? Look at that this morning. I think Paul, in this section, I think has three pretty clear things for us. First one is this, that we are to renounce to its fullest degree sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. Three broad sins that, that three broad strokes of sin that characterize the unbelieving world. We're to reject that. Number two is this, we're to instead bear the fruit of light. We see that there in verse 8 and 9. We're to bear the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
Number three here, that we're to work for the transformation of unbelievers by exposing the deeds of darkness and calling others to come into the light. We see that there in verses 11 through 14. That's where we're going this morning. This is important for us to think about. We're children of light. You're a child of light. That has implication on how you live, right? That's what this whole second half of Ephesians is all about. Now that you've been made new in Christ, now that you've been saved and adopted and made a child of light, how then shall we live? How do we rub shoulders with unbelievers? So let's look at the first thing here. What a child of light is to do. What do they like? First one is to renounce, as Paul says in verse 3 here, but all sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, among God's holy people. Brethren, these are, th- these are three broad brushstrokes of sin, and they must not even be named among you. The NIV puts it this way, must not even be a hint of. That strikes a little bit harder, at least into my own soul. Not even a hint of this. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Brother, Paul says here that these kinds of people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Sexual immorality in all of its forms must not even have a hint among us. Not even a hint. And remember, Jesus presses this even to the heart of the believer. Remember, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. Okay, that's fine. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with a lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus present to the issue of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. That's where everything begins is in the heart, brethren. Everything must be turned from. It has no place among God's people, God's holy ones. Brethren, listen, sexual immorality will destroy you. It'll kill you. And it will destroy your witness in the world. And we read this all over the Proverbs. You read, you read Proverbs 1 through 10 and you see constantly warning after warning after warning after warning of sexual immorality, sexual sin. Proverbs 8 talks about costing you your life. Chapter 7, a disgrace that will not be wiped away. And we see all over the Bible that we're to flee Sexual immorality. It's an interesting way to put that. You're to flee sexual immorality. Not to fight against it. You don't fight against sexual immorality. You run. You run away. It's an interesting picture there. We only talk about fighting sin. and You don't fight this one. You run. You flee. Just like we see Joseph doing in Genesis. Remember Joseph? At the end of Genesis, Potiphar's wife tries to lay hold of him and says, lie with me. And he doesn't give any argumentation, doesn't doesn't try to fight sin. What does he do? He runs. That's the picture for us, brethren. You gotta run. Flee. Sexual immorality. Paul also talks about greed and covetousness. Must not even be named among us. Why, why is coveting such a problem? Have you ever thought about that? You know, we were reading in the Jesse Tree thing, you know, uh, or, or reading the other night and, you know, reading through the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments Commandment is not do not covet. 
You guys understand that? Uh, I know we, all, we often think that. It's, it's not just don't covet. I, I was reminded about that, uh, was it last night or whenever we read that? It's don't cover your neighbor's wife, don't cover your neighbor's ox, don't cover your neighbor's donkey, don't cover your, cover your neighbor's male or female, sir, don't covet anything. No coveting. Why? Well, brethren, those who are, who are constantly coveting, they're discontent. They are discontent with what God has given them. They are ungrateful and never satisfied. You don't need to covet anything. Everything that is Christ's is yours and ours. We have an inheritance that is perfect, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It all belongs to us. There's no need to covet anything that someone else has. And for the Christian, really, the opposite is true. Right? Instead of discontentment, we have contentment. Instead of being ungrateful, we have gratefulness. Instead of never being satisfied, we are satisfied ultimately in Christ. There's no need to act like the world acts. And remember, the covetous person in the Bible takes on a form of, of, of only being concerned with storing up more and more for themselves. We said all over the Bible. And as Paul says in verse 5 here, he says, someone who is covetous, that is an idolater. That's interesting to think about. You know, we're, we're, we're nice and we're posh out here in the West and we're so sophisticated that, you know, we don't, we don't bow down to idols. You ever go into Southeast Asia or, or any other Asian country like that and uh, you see people and they are bowing down to statues. And us here in America, well, we're, we're not that foolish. We would never bow down to a stone statue. We just bow down to little paper money or little numbers on a computer screen on our cell phone when we check the bank account, right? It's interesting to think about that. And what's the problem with, is I, with idolatry and covetousness or greed or always just being concerned with storing up more for yourself? Brother, this all pulls at our hearts. Wealth and possessions can easily replace God. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. This pulls at all of our hearts constantly. Constantly. We need to be on guard against this. For money being our security rather than God. We need to be on our guard of money being the object of our love and devotion. We need to be on guard of that. Because that's how the world is. That's how the world acts. Give me more, give me more, give me more. There's a famous billionaire uh, who was asked, you know, how much money is enough? And he said, just one more dollar. Just one more. How much is enough? Just one more. And that's how it is. That's, that's, how, the, that's how the human heart is. And Paul says, stay away from that. It'll destroy you. The covetous and greedy person has an unwillingness and a hesitancy to help other people. And we see this in the parable of the rich fool. There is an unwillingness and, an, and, a, and a hesitation to help other people. Just constantly building, and you guys know that story, I don't, I'm not going to go there, but uh, he, uh, constantly filling his barns. He, he gets more crops, and he builds a bigger barn. He's got more crops, and he, he tears that one down and builds a bigger one. Why don't you go share, with, go share that with other people? Don't be a blessing to others. Don't just store up for yourself. God has blessed you. Use it for the good of other people. That's the danger for us. Pulls at the heart. We've got to be on our guard against it. On our guard against all covetousness and greed. 
Brother Paul says that these are not proper for children of light. It's not proper for the holy ones. We're set apart from the ways of the world and we're set apart for the things of God. Serve the Lord with what He has given you. And then Paul says here uh, in verse 5, why is this? Why, why do we avoid these things? Why is that? Well, Paul's pretty clear here. Two things. These kinds of people, the covetous, the greedy, and those that live in sexual immorality and impurity have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. None. And the wrath of God comes upon those sons of disobedience. And you know what's so glorious, brethren? What does it say there in 1 Corinthians 6? Paul, Paul gives a very similar list here. He lists a number of vices. Uh, let's just actually go over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Very similar over here. Starting in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Very similar here. He says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brethren, that is good news for us. Because you know what? Such were some of you. Sexually immoral, impure, greedy, covetous, always looking to get more and more and more. But you were washed. You were washed by the blood of Christ. Justified. Made new by the Spirit of God. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So don't go back to those old ways. You're a new man. You're a new woman in Christ. And you know what? Because you've been made new, because such were some of you, and you're not like that anymore, this ought to cause you to have compassion on others who were mired in that kind of sin. Do you think that way? When you see people entrenched in sexual immorality, fornication, got your family members and they live with each other, and they're not married, or you see your, your, your siblings or your friends just going chasing after the almighty dollar. Just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Does it cause you to have compassion on them? Because you used to be like that, maybe. It ought to. It ought to. Because we, we know what that's like. And God has saved us. Such were some of you. But these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Secondly, the wrath of God comes upon those who live like this. Paul says, he says, don't let anyone deceive you. Now, why would he say that? Because people are, are coming in and trying to deceive the people. Ah, it's okay. Ah, you love each other. Just go live together. Not a big deal. Ah, grace. God's gracious. What does Paul say in Romans 6? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. Sexual immorality, greed, covetousness, it will be judged by God. It will. And the testimony of Scripture is clear. And there are 
countless examples of this. I was uh, messaging uh, Nick and Aaron and just asking them just to rifle off some examples of, of, of in Scripture of, of accounts where, where, where sexual immorality and greed were judged by God, and there are a number of them. And I'm not going to go to all of these, but I want to go to one that kind of captures both of these ideas together. Now, I want to ask you this, and I want you to tell me what you think of here. When you hear these words, what do you think of? Ready? Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you think of? Okay. I like that. What do you think of? Sexual morality. Sexual morality, right? Greed, right? Homosexuality, filth, wickedness. What did you say? Lawlessness, right? When we, when we hear those words, Sodom and Gomorrah, at least the first thing that comes to my mind is sexual immorality. Sexual sin. Like the pinnacle of it. And you know what God did to that city? He rained down fire on it and judged it. This is not a joke. He, he destroyed these people and rained fire from heaven upon them. But you know what doesn't really come to mind? Is their covetousness, at least for me, right? Is their greed, although you named uh, three of the things that we're going to talk about right now. So I think you know the passage I, I might be speaking about here. When we hear Sodom and Gomorrah, we think sexual morality. But we don't often think of covetousness, greed, and pride. I want you to go over to Ezekiel chapter 16. I want to show you this here. Ezekiel 16, God is rebuking very firm Jerusalem. In this, in this whole, really most of the book, but uh, really in this section... Ezekiel 16, and I want to read verse 49 and 50. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. God says this, and He's talking to Jerusalem. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now, right away, it's not good to be uh, said to be related to Sodom. You don't want to be related to Sodom. You don't want her to be your sister. That's not a good thing in and of itself right away. Okay, well, what were the sins of Sodom that Jerusalem were committing? Look at what it says. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty or prideful and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Sodom and Gomorrah, sexually immoral. A city and a people who, who, who walk in pride, who have excess of food, prosperous ease, and they're storing it all up for themselves, covetous and greedy, and not aiding the poor and needy, not strengthening the hand of those around them. And what did God do to them? He removed them. He removed them. Don't be deceived, brethren. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And you see it with Sodom. And you know what? Sodom is used as an example. That's why I chose this one. Because it's used as an example of judgment all over the Bible. All the way into the New Testament. Everywhere. A picture right here. The wrath of God comes upon those who live like this. 
then he says this. He says, don't become partakers with them. These kinds of people, verse 7, therefore do not become partakers with them. What does that mean? We need to understand that. That's an important phrase. Don't become a partaker with them. Well, what, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean first is this. It doesn't mean do not associate with them. That's not what the text is saying. That's that first option back in the middle or in the beginning, right? We just remove ourselves and say, oh, you are living in sin. You're greedy. You're impure. I'm just going to remove myself away from you. The Bible says don't, don't become partakers with them. That's not what this text is saying here. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Uh, you can go there if you want, or, or, or you can just listen. Paul says this. He says, um, now I am, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone. Nope, no, back up a little bit. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Okay, so Paul wrote to these people and said, don't, don't associate with them. And, th and then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. There's our grouping. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You would have to leave the world to not associate with them. They're everywhere. So Paul's clarifying here. I don't mean not, don't, don't just get away from them. You have to leave the world. And then he clarifies that, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality, greed, or, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. So my point here is this. What Paul is saying here, therefore don't become partakers with them. He's not saying don't associate with them. Stay far away from them. Don't look at them. Don't talk to them. You'd have to go out of the world. So what is this talking about here? What Paul's talking about is do not join them to the fullest extent to be one with them. This is the same word back in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, that says this. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. So Gentiles, us, are fellow heirs with, with the believing Jews, right? We're, we're members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are full members in God's people. We are full partakers of the promise. We have joined in completely with God's people. We are God's people by faith in Christ. We're partakers to the fullest extent. You see what I'm saying here? Paul's saying don't do that with these kinds of people. Don't become partakers with them. Don't join in with them in their flood of debauchery, as Peter says. Don't be a partner with them. What does light have to do with darkness? Nothing. So don't be unevenly yoked with unbelievers. And we see Christ doing this all the time in the Bible, in the Gospel accounts. He's around like Minos mentioned in the Friday night Bible study, I mean, he, he finds himself with prostitutes and tax collectors. I mean, you don't get any more sexually impure or greedy as that. But what do we see Christ doing? Being a partaker with them? Absolutely not. And he's not just hanging out and having kumbaya either. That's the other pitfall that Christians fall into. Oh, we're just hanging out. Well, Jesus did it. <laughs> Stop. Stop. Jesus w was around them and called out their sin, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. 
He came there to win them and did win them. He didn't partake with them. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't be a partaker with them. Don't join in with them. And he says, why? At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. So brethren, for us as God's people to be a child of light, first of all, it means this. We got to walk as a holy people. We got to not participate in the debauchery of other people and be set apart for God's purposes. And in that, in that, God is glorified. And in that, you are shining light in the midst of darkness. Secondly, this one, this, this one will be a little bit shorter. Children of light produce the fruit of light. So the first one is, is we don't take part in these wicked sins that God is going to judge and those who practice have no inheritance. Number two, we produce the fruit of light. The children of light produce the qualities of light. Okay? Children of light produce the qualities of light. Now let me ask you if you've heard this expression before. The acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. You heard that before? That English idiom? Uh, have you heard that before, Lydia? No? Okay, yeah. All right. It's okay. It's just an English. Have you heard that? Yeah, is that something that you, the French have? No? Maybe? Oh, yeah, you've heard it. Okay. So, so, so the acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree. What does that mean? Well, essentially, it just means that your children are kind of like you, right? All right? How, your children bear the image and the resemblance of their parents, for better or for worse, right? I see this all the time in my classroom. If, if the kid is a knucklehead and I call home and talk to his mom or dad, and then I realize, ah, the acorn doesn't fall too far from the tree, okay? Uh, for better or for worse. Or, or kids that are really nice and respectful, you call home and you tell them how great they're doing and respectful parents. And, you know, and, and, and there's uh, uh, caveats to all that, and it's not a cross-the-board kind of thing. But, but, but the point is this. As children bear the image of their parents... The children of God should bear the image and resemblance of our Father. And God is the one who is good. And God is the one who is right. And God is the one who is true. And so children of light, brethren, we bear the image because we're remade in the likeness of Christ our Savior. Bearing these fruits of goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, I want you to notice just quickly here that these three, I think, have an opposite uh, of the previous sins listed here. And I'll kind of talk about this as we go. But these three kind of, kind of match up with the, with, with the three sins already mentioned here. The goodness. Children of light produce good. God is a God of goodness. God is a good God who does good things for His people. God is described this way in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 25. You can write that down. We're not going there. But it, it shows how uh, God showed benevolence and kindness to Israel. When, when Nehemiah is praying, he says that God gave His people cities, rich land, orchards, and fruit trees. He gave good things to His people. And then it says there that, So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God is the great giver of gifts. He's the great giver of gifts. And in the same way, church, if we're going to bear the fruit of goodness, we need to be those who are vibrantly active for the concern and the good and the welfare of other people. 
To, 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 to bear the fruit of good is to do good for others. It is to be others-oriented. To be others-oriented. And this is the exact opposite of the one who's greedy and covetous, is it not? <laughs> we, are, we, we are looking how to bless others. Looking how to dispose of goodness to other people. We see this with Jesus. We mention this verse all the time. You should have it memorized by now. Acts 10.38, Jesus went about doing good. Doing good. He was always looking out for the interests of other people, not himself. And we see that the goodness of, of, of Christ finds its climax in him laying down his life for us. There is no greater good that God did for us and laid down his life to save you. Listen to what Titus 3 says. It says that when the goodness... And loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. The goodness of God. When it shows up, we get salvation. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. And this sounds like the good works back from Matthew chapter 5. Your self-sacrificial service and giving wins people to the gospel. we got to understand that. It's not just about preaching truth. That's true. We should do that. But our good works, what, it causes people to glorify God. And people don't glorify God if they're not converted. Your good works, your, your self-sacrificial service toward others, coupled with the gospel of grace, opens the door for salvation. And brethren, we see it all over church history. Countless testimonies, countless stories. You can think of them on your own. Where Christians go in, they do good for the people, and it opens doors wide open for the gospel. Doing good. Also bearing the fruit of righteousness or right doing. God, God is the one who does right. God does what is right. And for us, as children of light, we walk in God's world, God's way. And you know what? This is part of the point of Proverbs. I was thinking about this as I was looking at uh, some of these cross-references here. Remember what Solomon says in Proverbs? He says, he has written so that we would receive instruction in righteousness. He writes Proverbs to instruct you how to live as a king and queen in God's world. To do what is right kingly wisdom, to rule well as God's children, to do righteousness. Someone prayed it earlier, Micah 6.8, what does God require of you? To love mercy, to walk, or to do justice and walk humbly with your God, to do what is right. That's what God requires of us. And you know what? Proverbs 14 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There, people think there's a right way, but it's not governed by the Scriptures. They do what's right in their own eyes. Remember, that's what uh, the book of Judges, it's constant refrain there. Everyone doing right in their own eyes. But how do we know what the right thing to do is? You know what God says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28? He says, if you obey my commands, you will be doing what is good and right. So what's the right thing to do? We've got to go to the Scriptures. We've got to govern ourselves by what has God said. Seeking to honor God and walk in His ways. And the last one here is truth, truthfulness. Christians bear the light of truth. 
Because we follow the truth. Who's the truth? This is the textbook Sunday school answer. Just shout it out. Jesus. That's right. Good job, Caleb. I see you back there. Right? Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? We follow the truth. We walk in the truth. Aaron said the other week that we speak the truth with one another. No more lying and falsehood. That's the old man. That's the old woman. No, we speak the truth to one another. Why? Because we serve a God of truth. A God of truth. We read the truth, right? Jesus said in John 17, 17, I love this passage, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is what? Truth. We read the truth. We study the truth. We follow the truth. We rejoice in the truth. Right? 1 Corinthians 13. We don't rejoice in falsehood. We rejoice in and with the truth. And the opposite of truth is falsehood. Falsehood. Brethren, Christians are genuine people. Genuine. We're not false. We're not false. Because God is not false. God is true. We're genuine. We don't act one way on Sundays and then we go walking in another way Monday through Saturday. That's what the unbeliever does who comes to church on Sundays. They got their act together for a few hours and they go out and walk in falsehood. That's not how Christians are. We walk and speak the truth. And brethren, these fruits, goodness, righteousness, and truth, bear powerful witness in the world. Powerful witness in the world. When we seek to do good, when we uh, live in God's way, or, or live in God's world God's way, when, we, when our lives just breathe out truthfulness and genuineness and not falsehood, it testifies to who God is. Who God is. And that's how, another way, we shine light in the world. Doing good, walking in the right ways of God, and being men and women of truth. Now lastly here, children of light labor for the transformation of unbelievers who are entrenched in sin. I want to read uh, 11 to 14 here. It says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything, notice here, but when anything is exposed by the light, that's you, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. This transformation there, you see that? Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Brother, this whole emphasis in this last section here has to deal with light's transformative power. Light transforms. Transforms a room. It transforms a plant. It transforms a person. You can't live without light. That's how God made the world. You guys see that? You guys recognize that? God spoke light in the darkness. He gave light. He made it, the world, such that nothing can live without light. Light gives life. That's the point. It gives life. 
Now, Paul says here to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Now notice this. Not only take no part, not, not, not only remove yourself from these works of darkness, don't, don't join in them, remove your, that, that's easy to do sometimes, right? Easier to remove yourself and say, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm just going to remove myself from those works of darkness. But there's more involved. Lest you become a hermit and self-righteously look down on all people who are not Christian. Don't just remove yourself from them. Don't just take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but what? Expose them. Expose it. Uncover it. Bring it into the light. Now listen, there are risks involved in exposing darkness and exposing sin. There's a risk involved. John the Baptist, he tells Herod, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. You can't do that, Herod. Remember what happened to him? They didn't, they didn't like that very much. What happened to John the Baptist? Got his head chopped off, beheaded. There's a risk involved there, shining light in the darkness. Remember Stephen? Stephen preaching there in Acts chapter 7, telling them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just as your fathers resisted Joseph, who was your deliverer, just as uh, uh, the Israelites resisted Moses, so you have resisted Christ. Shining light in the darkness. And they killed him for it. There's risk involved. But, but, there is great reward involved when we are faithful to do this. Remember Jesus? He comes to the, to, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he says, where is your husband? She says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Ooh, he speaks right into there and reveals darkness. And what happens to her? She goes back. She believes in Christ. She tells the whole city of the Samaritans. They all come out, and they say, we have believed. We've seen. This is the Christ. And they get saved. We see Peter preaching in Acts chapter 3 on the day of Pentecost. He looks at those Jews and he says, You crucified the, the, uh, the Lord and Messiah. You crucified Him. You killed Him. This Jesus whom God raised from the dead is Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart. And 3,000 souls got saved and went into the waters of baptism confessing their sin and believing in Jesus Christ. Next chapter, Acts chapter 4, Peter says again, you denied the righteous one and killed the author of life, exposing the greatest darkness ever to walk or, or to happen on the face of this earth. 2,000 more people are saved and baptized. Jesus himself comes to Saul on the road to Damascus in pure light, blind Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? uncovering his dark sin. God saves him and uses him. That should be encouraging for you. There's risk involved, yes, that's true, but there is glory to be had. There is good fruit there. God saves. 
That's the purpose of exposing sin. And listen, we got to get this right. If we don't expose sin with the light of the gospel and the light of God's word, sinners are left in ignorance. They're left in ignorance. It must be uncovered. It must be exposed. And listen, the mission of the church is not just to improve the moral behavior of the world. We don't just go out into the world and say, that's bad, knock that off, don't do that. That, don't knock that off. Stop doing that. Do this. That's not what the mission of the church is. We're looking for complete, total transformation. We call out the deeds of darkness, not so that they would just be morally upright people, but that they would come out of the darkness and into the light of Christ to be completely and radically transformed and remade. That's what we're looking for, that the gospel would come in and change them from the inside out. Church, we've got to expose darkness and shine our light in order to win people. To win them. That's the point. Not to, not, not to put people down. Not just to win arguments. Not just to prove that someone's theology is bad or heretical. Not, not, not to just win. But to win them. To win them. That's what Titus says in Titus chapter 1. He says to rebuke false teachers so that they would be sound in the faith. Not just to win an argument and tell them you're wrong. To win them. We can't miss that. We can't miss that. We want to win sinners to Christ. That they would come into the light and be transformed by the light. That's what Paul says here. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And and anything that becomes visible is light. That's what we want. We want people to come out of the darkness. And this is the call of the church here. Verse 14. This is our call to unbelievers. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Oh, people are asleep. They're dead in their sins. The church is not dead in their sins. The church has already arisen to new life. And we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But we call out to unbelievers, Arise! Get up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Come into the light where there's life and glory and forgiveness. That's our call to unbelievers. This is about conversion. And Christ, we learn here, will shine on you. He's the source of the light. You are light, but in another sense, we're just reflected glory of God because Christ shines in you. He's the source of light. It's Him. He's the true light that's come into the world. Come to Christ, and He'll shine on you and give you life. And this little statement here, Paul pulls, I think from a few different places, but I think primarily it comes from Isaiah 60. And that was our Old Testament reading there. And if you read Isaiah 60, the whole chapter, I mean, you can just go over there because we're going to end right here. I'm about done. In Isaiah 60, the whole chapter has to deal with these nations, these Gentiles coming into the light of Yahweh, into the light of God's people. God's people shining with Yahweh Himself as the light. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Well, who's the light? 
We can just go down to verse 19. We didn't read that far, but Yahweh is your everlasting light. He's the light. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That's God's people, the church. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness of peoples, but Yahweh will arise upon you. Again, the church. And His glory will be seen upon you, His people. And then look at the result here. And nations shall come to your light. And nations, or and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's the point, brethren. God shines light on you. You are light, and we shine light into this world that the nations would come, that they would come and be saved, that they would come out of darkness. And, and, and Gentile, uh, it just soaks this entire section here. And Gentiles from everywhere, kings are coming in, people from Midian and Sheba, and they're coming, bringing their gold and frankincense and praising Yahweh. The coastlands hoping for him. Verse 10, we didn't read this far, but foreigners are going to help build your walls, help build the temple. That's the church, as we've learned already in Ephesians. Kings are going to come and minister. I mean, brother, we got the nations coming in here. That's the entire point. And Paul says, essentially, this is all fulfilled in Christ. Christ is that light that has come into the world. And Christ is the one who shines. And we see this, right? We see this in Matthew, Christmas season here, right? We see Jesus born into the world. And who comes bringing gifts of frankincense and gold? Wise men from the east, the magi from the east. And where are they coming to? They're following the light. They're coming to the true light. And what are they coming for? To worship. To worship Him. What a beautiful picture that is. And you know what? Ever since that day, and to, to, all the way up until today, and it'll continue on, this is what's been going on in, in, in the history of the world. The nations are coming out of darkness and coming into the light of Christ. This is what's been happening. They come in and they worship. So brethren, as we think about who we are as children of light, Remember, as God's people, we are to walk in holiness. We are to bear the fruit of light. And we may, may God help us, labor and labor for the transformation of unbelievers who are in darkness, calling them to wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, come to Christ, and He will shine on you. Let's pray.